right then, the teacher said crisply, startling a few students out of their conversations. Let's start off this week with a little choose-your-own-adventure. A few students sat up straighter in their seats, and a few students groaned. I was a groaner. I hate when teachers do this. They phrase something like it's going to be fun, but then it's either really unpleasant or more work. Or both. The teacher continues. Imagine you're at home asleep in your bed. I wish I was, shouted one kid from the back of the room. Okay then, Frankie, the teacher said in reply to the nervy kid who sat smugly with his dirty sneakers propped up on his swing-open desk. We'll just use you as an example instead. A groan slid out of Frankie's mouth and his cohorts snickered. The teacher went on. Imagine it's a Friday night at 9.30, and, like usual, you, Frankie, are home alone getting ready to go to bed. The teacher went on, and the kids let out an ooh in recognition of this, the sickest teacher burn they had ever heard. Frankie gritted his teeth, but, as the teacher had pointed out in class just yesterday, he was already on thin ice. So Frankie thought it best not to ruffle any more feathers. All right, then, settle down, the teacher said. So, Frankie, you are in your bed, sleeping. Hours go by, and it's around 3 a.m. now. You are suddenly roused from a sound sleep by a piercing scream from outside your window. You sit up in bed, not exactly sure of what you just heard, but then you hear it again. The scream is piercing and full-throated. Whoever created it really seems to mean it. Do you... Go to the window to see what's going on, or go back to sleep. Frankie thinks for a moment and then says, Go to the window. I have to know what's going on. Okay, the teacher says, moving forward. You get up and go to look out of your bedroom window, which faces the street below. There, you see a girl staggering around with a beer bottle in her hand, clearly intoxicated. You can't see this girl's whole face as you're not that close to her and her hair is hanging in it, but she does look familiar. Three men surround her, all subtly trying to grab her, but she throws them off with enough force to knock one of them right off their feet. Do you call the cops or keep watching? Frankie replies, "Mm, keep watching. I don't know what's happening there. Maybe she's acting crazy and they're trying to get her to go home. The teacher considers this and then moves on again. All right. The streetlight catches just her eyes for a second and you can see that she's crying hard and the terror has washed over her for one reason or another. You hear one of the men say that she looks super drunk and that they should take her somewhere. Then you watch the three of them form a circle around her so that she can't run away and push her into a car. The men climb in after her, and the car screeches off into the distance, with the girl screaming for help through one of the cracked windows. Do you call the cops? Or look around to see if anyone else just witnessed this. Frankie, once again, pauses to consider the question and says, Look around. Maybe she just didn't want them to take her home. Maybe her mom was going to ground her for being drunk. I don't know this girl or what's going on with her. Okay. Okay, the teacher repeats. You kind of can't believe what you just saw. And you look around, assuming that you are the only person seeing this. But you're not. 
Three other houses have people standing in their windows, watching with ashen faces. And one person has come out onto their front porch. Yet another person is standing in their open front doorway with their phone in their hand. Now there is a very real chance that you have just witnessed a kidnapping. Do you call the cops or go back to bed? This time, Frankie doesn't need to pause. He says, go back to bed. A few members of the class gasp. Oh, come on. That dude in the house across the street already has his phone out. Plus, chances are he's an adult and I'm not. It's taken care of. If the cops need a statement from me, they'll find me. The teacher stares for a moment and then says, thank you, Frankie. Those are all the choices I need you to make. Now let's see how it all shakes out. Frankie then goes back to bed citing that it was likely his neighbors had already dealt with the situation. His neighbor across the street with the phone in his hand had been up late communicating with a woman with whom he was having an affair. In fact, that is who he was on the phone with at 3 a.m. He was not calling the cops. This man assumes someone else will call and goes back to bed, not wanting his wife to catch on to what he was doing. The man that was standing on his front lawn is terrified that the men who abducted this girl had seen him and could come after him if he was the one to tell the authorities, and so he quietly goes back to bed. The other people watching from their windows also pass the buck in their own mind, and in the end, no one calls the cops. The next morning, Frankie, you go downstairs to breakfast. The news is on and your mother is glued to the couch, wide-eyed, and she says, I cannot believe this happened a block from where we live. What? You ask Frankie, just in time to hear the news report. The reporter says that last night at approximately 3.40 a.m., three men drug a 16-year-old girl out into the woods behind their development. There, they gang-raped her and killed her, all the while making videos to upload to the internet. Authorities expect she was grabbed by the men at a party she had attended the next block over, as they had not heard anything from anyone else. The girl was a local student, one Sylvia Matthews. What the fuck? Frankie shouts from the back of the classroom. But the teacher presses forward. Sylvia's autopsy revealed high levels of a date rape drug in her bloodstream. Authorities discovered the crime and its perpetrators through a series of videos they had uploaded to YouTube. That's not fucking funny, Frankie screamed, now out of his seat and ghastly white. I know that, the teacher says, with purpose, and then continues. Eventually, authorities tracked down the suspects and brought them in for questioning, where, faced with live footage of themselves doing the things they were accused of, they immediately confessed. When asked why they thought they could get away with committing such a heinous crime within the full view of a neighbor, they answered that if her boyfriend hadn't stopped them, no one would. Police asked if the girl had been with her boyfriend at the party, and the murderer said, no, he was standing in his living room window when we took her. He watched the whole thing. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead.
Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. Happy Pride Month. Ooh. Yeah. This week we have our first Pride case. Um, I think we're going to do two this year. Um, and this case is probably a bit of a shocker to most of you guys. The bystander apathy slash bystander effect murder of Kitty Genovese is a very, very well-known case. Like, I would be surprised if almost any of our listeners hadn't heard of it in passing before. It's in textbooks. Mm-hmm. But the fact that Kitty was a lesbian is almost always left out of this story. She, like, lived in her apartment with her girlfriend, happily committed, and her home has now been marked uh, an historic New York LGBTQ plus landmark. Okay. Which is really nice. That yeah. just happened recently. And her girlfriend, Marianne, has gotten the place she so richly deserves in more and more retellings of Kitty's life. So we love progress. Okay. We're here to be part of that progress. We're not here for the lesbian erasure that happened. So that's why this is one of our pride cases this year. And if there's anything to take away from this story, it's that blending into a crowd and letting it carry you never really does what we want it to do, right? Yeah. To blend in. No. It's truly not good for anyone. I personally would rather stand out. Okay. Okay. I I see where you're going. See where I'm going? Yeah. Yeah. But it's hard when you look like a sad dish rag all the time. It sure does. It sure does. You're just like (laughs) flopping in the wind, just sadly hanging over that like oven, like holder stand On the oven bar. Yeah. Yeah. Candle. Why can't we? Why don't we know how to open an oven? I don't know. Cool, cool, cool. But there are lots of people wandering around looking like sad dish rags. So I blend right in. Yeah, yeah. Terrible. But luckily, <gasps> okay, I have learned that a healthy dose of validation fixes hell worth dying on. Do I forgot not the whole part. Cut me off, Holly. That's what gives me saggy rag syndrome. <laughs> saggy rag syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that got me. <laughs> I forgot about dying on a hill. Oh, man. But I was going to say, okay. should we redo it? But then you said saggy rag syndrome, and I can't possibly have that no, cut. we got to keep it. That's kept forever. <laughs> I can't deprive our listeners of that gold. Woo! Then we'll move forward. That hill worth dying on fixes dish rag face in two seconds flat. Okay. Two seconds. Two seconds? Fixed, yep. And lucky for us, our fiends can give us a little of that with no extra cost. How? You may be asking yourself, as you do every week. Yep. Well, I'll tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or Ava Renly review. It really does make a huge difference. In fact, it's the only way to move this podcast forward. And moving forward for us means more amazing content for all of you. Yay. And more content is what everybody wants. Yeah. I may be a shriveled raisin under my desk dead, but you know what? We'll get you that more content. We'll do it. <laughs> and if extra content is what you're looking for, well, you can also support us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, our patrons will have access to our special video after show, Host Mortem is really fun and if you guys are patrons and you're not listening or watching it like what's going on yeah what's up you also don't have to watch it you could just put on youtube in your headphones and like walk around and live your life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's there we're very funny <laughs> we're such a delight we are a delight we we talk about the case a little bit but mostly weird stuff yeah yep <laughs> 
So that's really fun. You'll also have access to extra minisodes, all of our 30-minute horror movies. Um, as a patron, you'll get the opportunity to vote on future episode topics. Sometimes you can Zoom with us, maybe attend some meetups in the future. I'm hoping we get a few more of those. I'd love to find one that's not in New Jersey because I mm -hmm. feel like we're like giving preferential treatment to the New Jersey people. Yep. Yeah. I did, uh, I think one of our patrons sent us one that was in Pennsylvania somewhere. Oh. I will send that over to you because it was, it looked really cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go to PA. Yeah. It's a big and maybe, state. Um, so patrons, we will, I will pull that up during our host mortem after this episode. So That sounds great. Yeah. Okay. So we can figure out what that is. Yeah. Together. As a team. <laughs> Together forever. And more. <laughs> that's the only part I left out that's of that it. sentence. That's all you left out. Yep. Oh, man. Got it in there. And if all of that seems like a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media, especially fucking Instagram, whose code I cannot crack. We are at Would Be Dead Pod on all of the platforms. Like or share our stuff, some of our stuff, all of our stuff, maybe. No one's stopping you. You can share every single one of it. Post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you are listening. Make us a TikTok soundtrack. Okay. I, I put that into the world last week. Yeah. It has not come back to me yet. But we did get put on a list. We did. Somebody made their own list and they put us right the fuck on it. That's fine. A, a few of my wrinkles have like filled in. Yeah. They're just like whoop magic. Yeah. So if anybody else wants to make a list, like our friend Devin. Thank you, Devin. Way to make a list. That was awesome. We'll take it. Anyway. Make us a TikTok soundtrack, too. Tell a friend. <laughs> tell a neighbor. Tell. Well, this episode is all about neighbors. <laughs> okay. So so tell Pam. Pam. And who's our other neighbor? Oh, was we it We had Pam? a couple. And Carl. He walks his dog. Carl walks his mm -hmm, dog. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I feel like there's a Gary. Who's Gary? I don't know. Got a lot of these. I don't know. So make sure you tell Pam. Yeah. Tell Carl. Tell mm -hmm. Gary. They can all become fiends, and then we'll all hang out together. Okay. Little gang. Little, like, neighborhood meetup. Okay, Maybe a block yeah. party. Uh-huh. I uh -huh. mean, if we got all these names together, we could definitely have a block party. Yeah, for sure. We'd have to um, talk to Shelly first, though, because she's, like, in charge of, like, talking to the city about getting the permit for Is the Shelley block party. Is Shelly our, like, bossy neighbor? Yeah, she's our Karen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, make sure you tell Shelly, too, because if you don't, you know she'll find out, and then she's going to be mad. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, it's just a complicated situation. <laughs> but we'll still all hang out together. Okay. All right. I think that might be all the news I have. Um, we do have some charities to support this month. I do have a promotion for that coming, I believe, next week. We're going to try and have it. And I will link. I will find some specific charities to link to this case. And you can check our social media this week to find out how to donate to them and help because we like to help. That's all I have. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? So, no, I don't. You said so like you did. Well, I mean, I might have, but like you, I didn't know I needed to bring something to talk about. I know. This is only the 115th time I've asked you. Yeah. I don't know. Just like, I, I don't know. I didn't ask you in the first couple episodes. Yeah. I only started doing that like four or five in, I think. Yeah. I think maybe like if you prepare me ahead of time and just yeah, be like, yeah. oh, if you have other things you'd like to say. You are surprised every time. Yeah. Because I, I don't know that it's coming. Genuinely. <laughs> also, probably the first 
30 times I said it, you really were surprised every time. You're like, um, hi. Uh, <laughs> this isn't where I talk. <laughs> this isn't where I parked my car. And then you got real nervous for a little while. Sure did. You'd look how good, look how far we've come. I know. So far. But, uh, but yeah, no, no, I have, um, I have no new news. Okay. Today. Right, On with the show. On the morning of March 27th, 1964, stacks of the New York Times hit the pavement with a knowing thwack. It's mm. a good descriptive I word. Like that. Sounds just like how it's spelled. Yeah. Soon they would be stocked on shelves and thrown haphazardly onto doorsteps, left in the lobby of hotels and stacked in the coin-operated dispensers by the hostess stand and diners. Soon thousands and thousands of New Yorkers would sip their coffee, yawn, stretch, and find themselves word-slapped in the face with the headline, 37 who saw murder didn't call the police. Apathy at stabbing of Queen's woman shocks inspector. Oh, wow. That's quite a headline. Isn't it? And um, is word-slapped a real phrase? I don't know, but it is now. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. We're keeping it. Word-slapped that shit. That's a t-shirt. That is a t-shirt. Yeah. You've been word-slapped. You've been (laughs) (laughs) word-slapped. You burnt. (laughs) You burnt. <laughs> and really, it's the only way to describe a moment like that where you read something and you feel slapped. You're like, ha! Ah, that's mm-hmm. what that mm-hmm. is. 37 people, and it says, saw a murder with their own eyes and did not call for the police. Please remember also that 911 will not exist in New York for four more years at this point in time. Okay. And I'll tell you all about how it came to be at another time. But there were still phones. Yeah. And there were live operators connected to the zero button at that point in time. You could press zero and talk to an operator. And they would immediately connect you to the police department if you had an emergency. Who also had their phone numbers listed prominently in the big yellow phone books that everyone in the time would have had. Mm -hmm. So 37 fucking... But also there's 37 people watching a murder happen. Like 37 people could possibly stop a murder from happening. Yeah, that headline is just all over the place. Like, right. what were they like, standing in a if, ring? What was it? You right. know? Yeah. It's very, um, I mean, I think it's meant to be eye-catching, obviously. Oh, that's interesting. It's Do a headline. You, does that happen? I think it does. Okay. I think it does, like, every now and then. I don't know. I thought only the God's honest truth was printed in anything ever. Yeah, this is going to be a shocker. I know. Good. Hold on to your Word slap. Yeah, word slaps. So, okay, to start this off, let's just, I'm going to read the entire story mm-hmm. from the New York Times. I don't really just normally read newspaper articles word for word, but I think we have to in this case. Okay. So, let's strap in. Quote, for more than half an hour, 38 now, the headline said 37, but we've moved up to 38. Okay. Respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice, the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out, and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned the police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. That was, I know, that was two weeks ago today. 
but Assistant Chief Inspector Frederick M. Lusson, in charge of the borough's detectives, and a veteran of 25 years of homicide investigations, is still shocked. He can give a matter-of-fact recitation of many murders, but the Kew Garden slaying baffles him, not because it is a murder, but because the, quote, good people failed to call the police. Quote, as we have reconstructed the crime, he said, quote, the assailant had three chances to kill this woman during a 35-minute period. He returned twice to complete the job. If we had been called when he first attacked, the woman might not be dead now. This is what the police say happened beginning at 3.20 a.m. in the staid, middle-class, tree-lined Austin Street area. 28-year-old Catherine Genovese, who was called Kitty by almost everyone in the neighborhood, was returning home from her job as manager of a bar in Hollis, Queens. She parked her red Fiat in a lot adjacent to the Kew Gardens Long Island Railroad Station facing Mulberry Place. Like many residents of the neighborhood, she had parked there day after day since her arrival from Connecticut a year ago, although the railroad frowns on this practice. Not supposed to park there. She turned off the lights of her car, locked the door, and started to walk the 100 feet to the entrance of her apartment at 8270 Austin Street, which is in a Tudor building with stores on the first floor and apartments on the second. The entrance to the apartment is in the rear of the building because the front is rented to retail stores. Um, this sounds a little confusing, but it's because, like, all the retail front entrances are there, so you have to go around in the alley to get to the apartment portion, which makes more sense when you kind of yeah. line it up. Okay. At night, the quiet neighborhood is shrouded in the slumbering darkness that marks most residential areas. Miss Genovese noticed a man at the far end of the lot near a seven-story apartment house at 8240 Austin Street. She halted. Then, nervously, she headed up Austin Street towards Lefferts Boulevard, where there is a call box to the 102nd Police Precinct in nearby Richmond Hill. She got as far as a streetlight in front of a bookstore before the man grabbed her. She screamed. Lights went on in the 10-story apartment house at 8267 Austin Street, which faces the bookstore. Windows slid open and voices punctured the early morning stillness. Miss Genovese screamed, Oh my God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Please help me. From one of the upper windows in the apartment house, a man called down, Let that girl alone. The assailant looked up at him, shrugged, and walked down Austin Street toward a white sedan parked a short distance away. Miss Genovese struggled to her feet. Lights went out. The killer returned to Miss Genovese, now trying to make her way around the side of the building by the parking lot to get to her apartment, so into the alley where the stairwell door is. The assailant stabbed her again. I'm dying, she shrieked. I'm dying, she shrieked. I'm dying. Windows were opened again, and lights went on in many apartments. The assailant got into his car and drove away. Miss Genovese staggered to her feet. A city bus, Q10, the Leffords Boulevard line to the Kennedy International Airport, passed. It was 3.35 a.m. The assailant returned. By then, Miss Genovese had crawled to the back of the building where the freshly painted brown doors to the apartment house held out hope of safety. The killer tried the first door. She wasn't there. At the second door... 8262 Austin Street, he saw her slumped on the floor at the foot of the stairs, so she's inside the door at the bottom of the stairwell. He stabbed her a third time, fatally. It was 3.50 by the time the police received their first call from a man who was a neighbor of Miss Genovese. In two minutes, they were at the scene. 
The neighbor, a 70-year-old woman and another woman, were the only persons on the street. Nobody else came forward. The man explained that he had called the police after much deliberation. He had phoned a friend in Nassau County for advice, and then he had crossed the roof of the building to the apartment of the elderly woman to get her to make the call. I didn't want to get involved, he sheepishly told the police. Six days later, the police arrested Winston Mosley, a 29-year-old business machine operator, and charged him with the homicide. Mosley had no previous record. He is married, has two children, and owns a home at 13319 Sutter Avenue, South Ozone Park, Queens. On Wednesday, a court committed him to Kings County Hospital for psychiatric observation. When questioned by the police, Mosley said he also had slain Miss Annie Mae Johnson, 24 years old, of 14612 133rd Avenue, Jamaica, Queens, on February 29th, and Barbara Kralik, 15, of 1 Avenue, whatever, Springfield Gardens, last July. In the Kralik case, the police are holding Av- Alvin L. Mitchell, who is said to have confessed to that slaying as well. The police stressed how simple it would have been to have gotten in touch with them. A phone call, said one of the detectives, would have done it. The police may be reached by dialing zero for operator or SPRING 7-3100. The question of whether the witness can be held legally responsible in any way for failure to report the crime was put to the police department's legal bureau. There, a spokesman said, quote, there is no legal responsibility with few exceptions for any citizen to report a crime. Under the statutes of the city, he said, a witness to a suspicious or violent death must report it to the medical examiner. Under state law, a witness cannot withhold information in a kidnapping. Today, witnesses from the neighborhood, which is made up of one-family homes in the $35,000 to $60,000 range, remember this is in 1964, with the exception of the two apartment houses near the railroad station, find it difficult to explain why they didn't call the police. Lieutenant Bernard Jacobs, who handled the investigation by the detective, said, quote, it's one of the better neighborhoods. There are few reports of stabbings, which I am, um, I'm summarizing this quotation because the article is old. Uh, it's more complaints about boys playing or garbage cans being turned over, end quote. The police said most persons had told them that they had been afraid to call, but had given meaningless answers when asked why they had feared. Quote, we can understand the reticence of people to become involved in an area of violence, Lieutenant Jacobs said. But where they are in their homes, near phones, why should they be afraid to call the police? He said his men were able to piece together what happened and capture the suspect because the residents furnished all the information when detectives rang doorbells during the days following the slaying. Quote, but why didn't someone call us that night? He asked unbelievingly. Witnesses, some of them unable to believe what they had allowed to happen, told a reporter why. A housewife, knowingly, if quite casual, said, quote, we thought it was a lover's quarrel. A husband and wife, wife both said, quote, frankly, we were afraid. They seemed aware of the fact that events might have been different. A distraught woman, wiping her hands in her apron, said, quote, I didn't want my husband to get involved. One couple, now willing to talk about that night, said they heard the first screams. The husband looked thoughtfully at the bookstore where the killer first grabbed Miss Genovese. Quote, we went to the window to see what was happening, he said, but the light from our bedroom made it difficult to see the street. The wife, still apprehensive, added, quote, I put out the light and we were able to see better. Asked why they hadn't called the police, she shrugged and replied, I don't know. A man peeked out from a slight opening in the doorway to his apartment and rattled off an account of the killer's second attack. 
Why hadn't he called the police at the time? Quote, I was tired, he said without emotion. I went back to bed. It was 4.25 a.m. when the ambulance arrived for the body of Miss Genovese. It drove off, quote, then, a solemn police detective said, the people came out. End of article. Wow. <gasps> Compelling story, that, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, so there were, like, a couple things I got out of that. One was that the article headline versus what's in the article mm-hmm. sounds very different. It yep. sounds like there's 38 people standing around watching this person get killed. Exactly. Versus them just being inside their bedrooms and they're piecing together all of this information. Mm-hmm. And then that guy calling his friend in Nassau County for advice on what he should do. Like, yeah. Just call the police. Well, I don't know. I don't get that part. That was really basic 70, right? It's just like, what should I do? And then pawned it off on his neighbors. (laughs) So we're going to get to the truth in this case in a little Uh bit. But the part of him calling somebody for advice is true. Yeah, I believe that. (laughs) I believe that. Being like, I don't know what to do. She's like saying she's dying. Well, yeah, I wonder what to do. And then this guy, the killer. Mm Mm-hmm. He has three kills now? He's a serial killer. Wild. Yeah. He is a serial killer. When did No one mentions that. But we'd, oh, but we'd, well, they don't know what that term is yet, right? No, but we do in the copious retellings of this case, and it's not mentioned anywhere. Oh, that's wild. No one ever calls him a serial killer. Okay. He is. Yeah. Three means serial. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. Yeah. He's also a serial rapist. Yeah. Okay. No one mentions this. Okay. Well, New York Shore thought this was pretty compelling, and in a rare and unusual turn of events, the blame seemed to not be on the killer, but rather fully on the citizens of Kew Gardens who did not react. Mm. There are pages and pages and pages and books and journals and movies and episodes of Law & Order about the phenomenon that was allegedly 37 to 38 people ignoring a murder they watched. But most people can't even tell you who committed this crime or why. And as we just said, this was by definition a serial killer, a serial rapist, and necrophile. Oh. He did so many gross things. At least two other women violently died, not to mention the 30 to 40 burglaries this man was guilty of. These factors are usually big news, but not in this story. Nobody was talking about Winston Mosley. Nobody was even talking about Kitty herself or her family. When the murder had occurred two weeks prior, like when it actually happened, this was not news. Mm-hmm. It was only picked up after the New York Times editor decided, like, I'm going to make this something. Apparently, he, like, overheard a detective talking about it at lunch one day and went, like, oh, this is something. And that headline in the New York Times is what changed everything. Mm -hmm. Everyone was talking about a new concept that the newspapers had dubbed urban apathy. It was said that people who lived in big cities ceased to live in a community and therefore stopped caring for their fellow man. You know, they were like, well, I'm in this city. I don't live in a neighborhood, so I don't care about people anymore. Which is weird because Kew Gardens is a neighborhood. I was going to say, in in every city, like, your little block is a neighborhood. Further than that, this is like a separate, it's like, there are normal houses. It's like neighborhood. Right, right. It's not even like you're in the city in, in like, New York. This is removed. The people who were said to have witnessed Kitty's murder, it was postulated, just thought that someone else would take care of it and went about their business. It calls them 38 eyewitnesses. That's what the news said, 38 people. That means Mm EYE saw the crime. And 
All of New York at the time implicitly trusted the New York Times. They didn't lie. They delivered accurate news. But if you paid attention to even what they printed, you would be connecting right now that they were more of what another gentleman called ear witnesses. Mm -hmm. A lot of them heard something. Some of them just heard a scream. And they were logged as one of the 38. Right. People were terrified. If this young woman was alone, well, then maybe so are we all, basically. Safety comes from the proximity to other humans who assume that we, who we assume are good and kind and will help us out if something goes wrong, right? We feel safe when there are other people around and we're not going to befall any terrible things. But when that concept disappears, what are we left with? Essentially chaos, right? Mm -hmm. Floating around in a storm alone like Kitty. And nothing is scarier than the thought of dying alone. Well, other than maybe dying in front of a bunch of your fucking neighbors who don't give a shit. Right. Very scary. Which this concept, it's important to recognize, feels personal to people now. Because a lot of times the reason that we'll become obsessed with a case if it's not like our hometown case or something is if it like hits a what if in our head. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the world could be walking down the street and have something awful happen to them or have somebody approach them. But you want to think that if there's a bunch of your neighbors around, you're going to be all right. But if she wasn't, maybe you're not. Right. Or vice versa. Yeah. You know, like you're just the idea of like, oh my God, would I have been the person that would have just like closed my window? Yeah. Could this have been my fault? I mean, I'm sure there are some people who would be not eager to admit it, but that that had that very thought. I'm Mm -hmm. sure. This story so captured the nation that it prompted nationwide campaigns to report any suspected danger. So there was Mm -hmm. a ton of like, if you see something, say something type things like help people out, call the police. And like I said, in four years later, when the 911 system was developed, they cited Kitty Genovese's case as one of the contributing, major, biggest contributing factors into doing it. Right. They, they figured people needed an emergency response, and we didn't have one at the time. People were urged to take perceived emergencies more seriously because it cannot be left up to someone else to help. Because if everyone thinks that way, who is actually left to do the helping? Mm-hmm. Kitty's murder set into action some landmark psychological research as well. Social psychologist Bib... Latane, you can pronounce that one better for me, and John Darley researched a psychosocial theory they called the bystander effect or bystander apathy after learning of Kitty's murder. But I think Leslie's going to tell us a little more about that this week. So, Leslie? Yes. Take it away. Okay. So, it is believed by most psychologists and law enforcement that the bigger the group, the less likely it is for someone to call for help during an emergency situation whether it be against a bully or an assault or another crime or even an accident. People are way more likely to step in and help if they are the sole witness. Yeah. So as Holly said, um, this theory was prompted by this particular case Mm -hmm. that we're talking about today. Um, The social psychologist, John Darley in Biblitane, which is what I thought it was as well, immediately began. that mark that got me. Yeah. Immediately began looking into the phenomenon. In a series of experiments, Darley and Latane found that people tend to feel a moral responsibility to help someone in distress if they believe they are the only witnesses. But if if they're surrounded by others, they're significantly less likely to feel like they have to intervene. So, in fact, in 1969, Latane found that while 70% of people would help a woman in distress 
If they were the only bystander, only 40% would come to her aid if other people were present. And that percentage significantly drops the larger the group becomes. This effect also carries over into the cyber world, where according to a 2015 review, studies have found that people are less likely to speak up if they are if they witness cyberbullying that takes place in a larger online group forums. Um, so like... Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, so yeah. that would be... Um, a lot of those would be, for instance, like like those dark web kind of videos. Like, yeah. so watching somebody be like molested on camera mm-hmm. and people are just like, oh, this is disgusting, but they don't contact the police. You just assume they must already know. Yeah. Somebody else must have said something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I didn't even, online didn't even enter into my brain. Yeah. So Latane and Darley attributed the bystander effect to two factors diffusion of responsibility and social influence. And then like now today we have a bunch more, but they all kind of go under this umbrella. The diffusion of responsibility means that the more onlookers there are, the less personal responsibility individuals will feel to take action. For example, you might think to call 911, but are feeling a bit timid or shy and just assume that someone else will call 911. Or maybe it's a scene where you need to speak up but don't feel like it's really your place because there's so many other people there that might be more connected to the situation. So you stay quiet. Oh, you're like, oh, they're probably better equipped to handle this than I am. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I definitely have that kind of brain. Yep. Yeah. Ew. I know. I know. And, And again, we're like, so this particular case is like somebody being murdered, but it could be like just somebody being bullied. Like it could be something smaller happening where yep. you're just kind of like, well, it's not really my my place. Like they're just, they're having a fight. Like I don't, uh, I don't know that I want to say anything. No one else is. Yeah. Or like, I just walked in on this. So like these people seem to know what is might be going on more. What maybe? if I go in there and they're like, oh, yeah. you don't even know what's going mm-hmm. on. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah. Or I'm like three rooms down the the one room down person will like take care of it yeah they're closer to the action they know what's going on um then there's social influence which means that individuals monitor the behavior of those around them to determine how to act for example when others are acting calm in the presence of a potential emergency you may take this to mean that a need to act is not needed or inappropriate okay so again that that one triggered a the idea of like every time we hear like a sexual assault story where it's like a group of people yeah. and you hear like that there were videos being taken oh and people God. are giggling or laughing mm-hmm. and there are other people in the room just kind of like, I know this is wrong, but like they're all kind of in on it. So maybe I, I'm the one that's maybe overreacting. I'm fine. Yeah. Like maybe this is okay. Oh, that's one of those situations where you're like, your gut's telling you one thing, but the whole rest of the situation is telling you another and you Mm -hmm. should definitely listen to your gut. Yeah. So you just kind of like stand there and you're like, all right, I I guess this is fine. We'll we'll figure it out later. Mm -hmm. That's hard. I know. A crisis is often chaotic and the situation is not always crystal clear. Onlookers might wonder exactly what is happening. During such moments, people often look to others in the group to determine what is appropriate. When they see that no one else is reacting, it sends a signal that perhaps no action is needed. If you don't want to be a bystander, you can be an upstander, Holly. All right. Upstanders are someone who speak out against bullies and have confidence in their judgment and values and believe their actions will make a difference. They are more likely to do the right thing because they take the time to stop and think before acting. I've definitely called the cops at things I've seen out my window before. Yeah. I just am remembering this. In my old neighborhood, 
there were people, there was like a lot across the street from me. It was an empty lot. Do you remember it was like weedy a lot of the time and there was a trailer on it a bunch? Yeah. And at like two o'clock in the morning, a truck would pull up and people would get out and they'd be in that lot just walking around, hauling stuff around or dropping things off or like doing God knows what. And I was like, this is not right. Right. And I called the cops on them more than once. Mm-hmm. One time they put a trailer on it and they were like in this trailer. And I was like, probably making meth. Right. I don't know if they were or not, but the cops did come out and they did leave. So okay. whatever they were doing, they weren't allowed to continue doing it because they had to go. Oh, good. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. The um, So one of the other tests that they did, uh, like or research studies that they did, mm-hmm. was um, it wasn't even severe. It was just this idea of they brought people in. Some people came, say you were put into a room by yourself and you were mm-hmm. just there either wait, like a waiting room or like maybe they were having you fill out a questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And then while in the room, smoke started to fill up. Like, you you just saw smoke coming from a vent. Yeah. The people that were in the room by themselves would, um, within two minutes, would get up to tell somebody that something was happening. Yeah. But the people that were in the room with at least two other people or more, it would take up to six minutes, which I think the experiment would last about six minutes. So it was the majority of those people would wait the entire time or not say anything to, and the experiment would just end because they would look around and like nobody, everyone felt kind of like weird and like, or they were looking at the other person and they felt like, well, they're not freaking out. So like maybe I shouldn't freak out. Oh my God. I would definitely say something. It was like, there is smoke in this room. You would think, but until you're put what? in that situation, you might not. No, I tell all the time. Yeah. I would totally have to say something to somebody. Mm-hmm. But now I, do... I assume it's also they knew that they were going in for an experiment. So maybe they weren't sure. But mm-hmm. at that point, you're still like, is this part of the experiment? Should I sit down? Because <laughs> the they're not being told like everything's going to be fine. And if you see anything happen, don't say anything. Yeah, no, I'm. Yeah. Yikes. So I probably would have been like, is this part of the is this supposed to smoke? Are we supposed to say something? <laughs> What do you think? What do you? I'm going to raise I'm my hand. Hey, there's smoke. <laughs> yeah. Smoke coming. I don't know. I'm not comfortable. Mm-hmm. We could be on fire. So. Yeah. It, I know. This is, all this is really interesting. But, um, okay. So if a bystander can help someone without risking their own life and chooses not to, they are usually considered morally guilty. But the average person is typically under no legal obligation to help in an emergency. And this is like a lot of stuff that's like now, nowadays, yeah, that's true. There's 1964. No, there's no like responsibility, well, I guess. However, some places have adopted duty to rescue laws, making it a crime mm-hmm. not to help a person in need. Okay. So such places include Quebec, Canada, Brazil, and Germany. Most of the laws say fairly the same thing, that there is a legal obligation to assist any whose life is in danger, either by personally stepping in or calling for aid, unless it involves danger to themselves or a third person, or if they have a valid reason for doing nothing. So it's just like they kind of leave it open, very easy to probably fight it. I think we probably have some failure to report laws, right? Uh, well, I'll get to that. Okay. So in Brazil, this is also includes like abandoned children, which I thought was interesting that that is actually separate. I didn't even think about that until they mentioned it, where it's like if you, you just, just see like a child see a by kid. themselves, like you should 
report like, hey, there's a child by themselves. There's a wild kid. Yeah. <laughs> or just like if you're in a grocery store and yeah, you yeah, just yeah. see a, a rogue kid and like no parent around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just think like, I mean, that that might have been times where you might be like, oh, there might be a parent. I yeah. always I usually stand by a kid till I know even person. if they don't know that that's what I'm doing. I'll like just make sure that a parent oh, ends a up person. coming through because it is scary. You're I like, never what? assume. Oh, I don't know that I've ever seen just like a wanderer with no parent that didn't like quickly appear. Right. I was like, oh, look, it's a kid. Just Although my kid will go like three aisles away from me in a store. Well, that's or, what I mean. And, the, and kids get turned around. So it's even just to be somebody there that can be like, I can bring you to customer service. Yeah. And just call your mom. Like, she's probably here. I don't think she left you. But no. or him. Yeah, I don't know. No. Plus, I think like in that situation, in a store situation, you can tell when a kid looks lost. Yeah. If they're just like into mm-hmm. what they're doing, they're they're probably okay. I'm also always waiting for a child to be like, I've been under the stairs for decades. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, well, first it. off, you're 10. You've been there for decades. Damn. <laughs> you look good. What is that validation you're carrying? <laughs> That's okay. all I had under the stairs for years was validation. <laughs> okay. Let me continue. Okay. So in the U.S., Good Samaritan laws have been implemented to protect bystanders who act in good faith. Many organizations are including bystander training. For example, the United States Department of the Army is doing bystander training with respect to sexual assault. Good. Some organizations routinely do bystander training with respect to safety issues. Others have been doing this training with respect to diversity issues. Also good. So I looked up some bystander effect example stories, like real life other stories. Were they all like Kitty Genovese? Some of them were like that. Some of them were were different. Like this one, um, this was, uh, they call it Kevin Carter's photograph, which I do remember this photograph. Boy, this sounds like an episode of Law and Order. Yeah. Kevin Carter. Do I have to Google this so I can see this photograph? I probably want to, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Google the photograph so you have it. You go. And then you could follow along as I tell you the story. <laughs> okay. It's going to be, so it's going to be this photograph of this, um, it's, from, I think they're in oh, South damn. Africa, mm-hmm. and there's a um, vulture standing behind this, like, tiny, malnourished young boy. Oh, that's young horrible. Boy. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't like this at all. Yes. Okay. Kevin Carter is a Pulitzer-winning photographer, um, and this, I believe that this photograph was also, like, a, like a Pulitzer-winning yeah, this, photograph. Yeah, this won some stuff. Mm-hmm. So he clicked this photograph in March of 1993. Um, we'll put, we might put this one. I don't know if we'll put this in the. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. You guys can find this one. You can look it up. Yourselves. Yeah, I'm going to let people look this up themselves okay. if they need to. So this photograph represents the brutality and suffering of the people of the sub-Saharan Africa. In this photograph, a female toddler is attempting to crawl towards the nearby rescue centers for food and shelter. So when you look at this picture, it is. This child is trying to crawl to get to food and shelter. And this is a skeleton child. And a vulture is standing behind her waiting to eat the toddler when she dies. It's bad. It was claimed by Carter that he waited about 20 minutes to get the picture of the vulture with the spread wings that he thought would be a better picture. But it didn't happen, so he just took the picture as is. The female toddler wanted the food and was trying to reach the aid station, but Kevin Carter did not help. 
He just waited there for 20 minutes to get the shot of the vulture with open wings. After taking the shot, he flew the vulture away from the girl and then left her as she was. What? Later, upon asking Carter, like, why he just, like, did not help this this girl, he said, I didn't want to get involved. Oh, my God. It's so sad. It's this poor little, she just wanted food, and he was like, let me get this photo, and then didn't help. Why are you there? Why are you getting this, why are you getting these photos? You you shouldn't have any prizes. Yeah. That's not the only horrible picture this guy took, either. I know. He's, I, ugh. Okay. Here's another one. I believe you say it. Kasin Morris, K-H-A-S-E-E-N. Kasin. Yeah, that's how I pronounce it. Mm-hmm. So, a 16-year-old high school sto- student, Kasin Morris, was told to visit a mall at some specific time by his friends on September 17, 2019. The moment Kasin reached the mall, he was attacked by a group of teenagers. He was repeatedly stabbed in his chest by the teenagers. The injuries were so brutal that he died in the hospital that night. The incident took place in the daylight, and several videos were found on the internet of the whole incident. No one bothered to intervene in the situation to help the boy apart from capturing the incident on their phones. This incident clearly represents the lack of humanity and the impact of the bystander effect. That was the end of that. Ugh. I couldn't. Yeah. And when you look at the photo that they that they share of this one, and and mm-hmm. there is a video of all this yeah, happening, it says but they're a YouTube just video, but I don't yeah, watch but it. But they're just in a parking lot in daylight, and it's very easy to see. People are capturing it. No yeah, one called it's the broad cops. daylight. Yeah, a God. poor little boy, and he's the cutest little thing he's too. Cute. Looks like a good kid. But there's so many different examples of that. That was ugh, makes me so sad. There was another one where um a girl at a school dance was asked to go outside with like a guy or like a like just to meet him on mm-hmm. like the side of the building or something so she was probably like okay we're like gonna go make out and then she was just like mauled and raped by like 10 men and people watched like even a teacher like looked out of the window and was just like Ugh, they're like making a commotion but like the, some of these kids didn't even go to school there and some of them were grown adults and so she was just like left just like naked and bruised up and nobody called oh anybody oh my god yeah. Oh, no. That was like, wild. So there, yeah, there's so many gross cases. Like, but, no, no hope for humanity. That so, Kevin Carter guy, you know what happened to him, right? No. Eventually, because his whole career, as a, that's what just sucked me into this right now, was taking pictures of people being killed. Like, oh, okay. He killed himself. Oh. Because the weight of what he did was so heavy that he just professionally watched people die and didn't help them for a long ass time. That eventually he just took his own life. But, like, why didn't he help them? He was getting paid an awful lot to churn out a lot of these photographs. But he would have gotten that photograph anyway. But then, like, carry that child to the aid center. That's not the only starving child he did that to either. Yeah, well, I believe that. He did that so nonchalantly, it felt like. I don't know. It wasn't his first rodeo. That is nuts. That is nuts. Wow. Okay. We'll so, talk more about Kevin Carter and host mortem. So if you're a patron, you can hear more about it after. Cool. Continue. Sorry. Whew. Okay. So how can we overcome the bystander effect? Yeah, please. Most psychologists agree that just by being aware of what the bystander effect is, you'll be more conscious of any thoughts 
that might hold you back from stepping in or getting help. So there you go, fiends. Now you know. Now you know. Knowing is half the battle. And we are now part of the majority that will not be a bystander. We are the solution, Mm -hmm. not the problem. Equally, if you are the victim in this scenario, it is suggested that you make eye contact with the person with like just one person in the crowd, like figure out, you know, look. and like person. Yeah. Mm. Ask and ask them for help, whether you have to mouth it or just like using your eyes, like something that gestures like I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. And this will personalize the bystanders involvement and usually snap them out of this effect. And they'll be like, "Okay, like I have to do this. Ask me specifically for help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really smart. Which is important because if you are in a kind of emergency scenario and the easiest one to think of is like maybe a car crash and you happen upon it and somebody's injured. Normally, there is one person that has to say, like, you call 911. Yeah. Like, that's something you learned. So sometimes we have to take that into our own hands and tell the person, like, I need help. Call 911. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to end with this little story that I thought summed up the bystander effect perfectly. This is a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Oh, boy. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have. Clever. I do encourage everyone to maybe. Just do a quick Google search of the bystander effect examples. Mm -hmm. And even just like reading one or two, you'll just be, it's a lot to like take in some of these like stories and to just think like, what would I have done if I was there? Yeah, the internet stuff is what hit home for me because like if I saw abusive comments online, I'm I'm not necessarily always going to be the first person that's like, oh boy, I should intervene. It's not always the... So at first I thought it had to do more with the comments, mm-hmm. like cyberbullying. Yeah. But it I think that it more pertains to, which can pertain to that for sure. But I think it more pertains to when somebody posts the video and everybody is like, you're just thinking like, okay, well, this video has been posted. I'm sure somebody did something yeah. that was there. Yeah. But then that doesn't always happen. I mean, that's where we're finding a lot more of those, you know, with our, maybe our kids being bullied on TikTok videos or, and you're just like, how did nobody, how did this not get into anybody's hands? How do we not know these things? How are the police not involved? You know? Yeah. That's really scary. That. So yeah, just, I think the main thing is to, it's sometimes better to assume that nobody is doing anything. Yeah, let me tell you, I've called the cops <laughs> now thinking back in my life so many times on random shit. Like, yeah. I've called the cops a lot of times on shit I just saw mm-hmm. randomly. Um, but if I was in the company of a bunch of other people, maybe I would have been worried about overreacting. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know because I am prone to overreacting. So I also found it interesting that they talk about children in the bystander effect Mm -hmm. where they say, you know, we don't, we can't blame kids for maybe not doing something because, you know, they're, they're just children and they're not sure what they're supposed to do, which is also the case for adults where sometimes you're just kind of like, I don't, I don't really know what to do. Yeah. I don't, you know, even that guy in the, in Kitty's case where he was like, I have to call this person. Like he just kind of got stumped. I, you know, who knows? But 
Um, what I found interesting was I think that as children, we learn a lot of things that we take into our adulthood. So as parents, when you find out that maybe your kid was involved in something, whether mm-hmm. they were maybe they were a bystander mm-hmm. of something happening, I think that it might be a good idea to not just push it off as like, well, they're just a kid. What were they supposed yeah. to do? I would maybe sit down with them and just have a talk of like, hey, this is what we could have done. Yeah. In, in case in the cases of maybe the bullying kind of thing, yeah. not so much like a, you know. <laughs> Murder. They broke their arm, and now what am I supposed to do? But like, even in that case, you know, like, don't rush a murderer. Here are here yeah. are things that you should that you can do safely. I mean, you can tell a teacher. Well, exactly. Well, yeah, that would be a you know a safe reaction yeah. to have, not just stand there. Interesting. Or video it. Like never put the video, video it. Put the videos away. This is what you should do. Well, I mean, unless. Unless you should video it. <laughs> I mean, like, there are some instances where you probably should video it, but you have oh, to this know that is very confusing. other people... Well, I mean, if you're watching someone... Help, I, I, know, don't know. I know, I know. I mean, there have been cases where it's like, without the video, we wouldn't have been able to bring mm-hmm. people to justice. So, yeah, it's all very ambiguous. But yes, thank you for that. That is scary and illuminating. Yeah. And this is a tried and true theory. The bystander effect's been around for a long time. It's heavily researched, heavily published. Um, lots of peer-reviewed articles on it. Any psychology textbook you pick up will have a mention of the bystander effect in it, and likely next to it will be a picture of Kitty Genovese. I know yeah, I've every single one of them. Every did. everyone. Yep. There is no doubt in my mind that most of you have heard this case more than once before. As I said in the very beginning, I know you probably read about Kitty's murder, but I bet you can't tell me one single other thing about her. Kitty became only the final 30 minutes of her life, a morality tale about the human condition. And with that, she made history. But the problem is, it wasn't all true. Oh. Yeah. This is not a story about a girl that no one cared about. It is not about a group of people who watched a murder occur and then went back to sleep. That didn't happen. This is not a fable or a cautionary tale about a faceless victim. This is the story of a girl named Kitty and how her death was rewritten to teach a lesson. But in the process, it erased her life. Kitty Genovese, first of all, did not die alone. The fact that her own family didn't find out until like 2016. Wow. She spent her last moments before dying in an ambulance cradled in the arms of her neighbor and dear friend, Sophia, who ran to her and wept, leaving bloody handprints behind on the wall. Kitty left behind loving parents and siblings and grandparents and many, many, many devoted friends. She also left behind a woman named Marianne who loved her. Kitty was more than just her murder, and so were her neighbors. So let's start this story again. In 1964, you didn't argue with the New York Times, right? Like, that's different, but we do now. So let's talk about it. Uh, Oh, I back-to-backed you this week. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm terribly sorry. But let's kick things off right. We're in New York. Mm -hmm. It's 1964. And we're talking about a 28-year-old woman living with her girlfriend and working at a bar. So is there anything you can tell us about this year to kind of get us in the groove before I launch into this whole story of Kitty's life? All right. So in 1964, the Beatles were the most popular, just everything. (laughs) The end. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. They released seven platinum albums that year. What? They, yes, seven. Working hard for the money, man. Yeah. They 
toured America, and during their first concert, they refused to play until the audience was desegregated. <gasps> All right, Beatles. Right. The top songs that year were mostly Beatles songs, uh, like I Want to Hold Your Hand and A Hard Day's Night. Mm -hmm. But others included Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las. Oh, we love that. Is that how you say that? Shangri-Las. Shangri-Las. The House of the Rising Sun by the Animals. A haunting ditty. I Get Around by the Beach Boys. Less haunting. And Chapel of Love by the Dixie Cups. The Dixie Cups? So cute. What a cute name. Top TV shows included Bonanza, Bewitched, The Andy Griffith Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and The Lucy Show. A lot of shows. Everybody's name. On the shows. Got it. Top must-see movies were Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, Goldfinger, and A Hard Day's Night. Those love, Beatles. Love some music. <laughs> For the first time ever, the 1964 New York Comic Con was held on really? Monday. Yep. Mm-hmm. It was on Monday, July 27th at the Workman's Circle located on the corner of 4th Avenue and 12th Street in Manhattan. A total of 56 fans attended, <laughs> including a 15-year-old George R.R. R. Martin who had purchased the first ticket to the event months earlier. Really? Yes. And for those that don't know, he's the one that wrote, um, well, shit. Isn't he, um... Game, of, Game Thrones. of Thrones. Oh my God. It's late, guys. <laughs> That's what I thought. I was like, he's Game of Thrones, yeah. right? But yeah. I would be the one that got it wrong. And you'd be like, no dummies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one day I will talk about dragons at these yeah. and millions of people will pay to watch. <laughs> so when I, when I Googled this, though, like I had to Google it separately because this story does come up and it is true. Okay. But... Also, 2006 also seems to be also. So maybe it restarted in 2006. Comic so there might have been like years off yeah. and then like a new one started. Fair enough. All right. The modern version of the Hippocratic Oath was written in 1964 by a man named Louis Lasagna. No. I love it. Dr. Lasagna? Because it is for doctors. Yeah. If you're Dr. Lasagna. It just said Louis Lasagna. Boy, howdy. I want to be your know. friend. <laughs> Steven Spielberg directed his first feature film, Firelight, in 1964, which was released at his local cinema. It was shot on a budget of $500 and took 500 and, and yeah, it took 501 at the box office, giving the film an official profit of $1. He made a dollar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I bet he has that framed. You know that. I hope so. So the reason you find so many 1964 nickels, because I'm sure you were all asking. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, I have so many 1964 yeah. nickels. Is that people thought that was the last year they contained silver. So people hoarded them. <laughs> the mint struck more coins to make up for the shortage. In reality, they were just made of nickel. Give me them nickels. <laughs> no. For the 1964 World's Fair in New York, Wisconsin created a... 34,951-pound cheddar cheese from the milk of 16,000 cows. I was on board with the cheese until we were talking about how many cow milks cows it was, were milked. I can't talk anymore. Then it got gross. 16,000. Now it feels gross. Yeah. Okay. I thought this was an interesting story. So jazz artist John Burke's Dizzy Gillespie ran for president. They call him Dizzy. Is it Gillespie? Yes. Okay. 
So Dizzy Gillespie, thank you, mm-hmm. ran for president. You Sometimes you don't correct me. And then like days later, John's like, the why Why would you say it this way? And I'm like, Holly should have told me. Sometimes I don't, I feel bad stopping you. No. <laughs> we can edit it out. That's true. <laughs> All right. Jazz artist John Burke's Dizzy Gillespie ran for president as an independent write-in. He promised that if he were elected, the White House would be renamed the Blues House, and he would have a cabinet composed of Duke Ellington as the Secretary of State, Miles Davis as the Director of the CIA, Max Roach, Director of Defense, Charles Mingus, Secretary of Peace, Ray Charles, the Librarian of Congress, Louis Armstrong, Secretary of Agriculture, and so on. Oh, Malcolm X as the Attorney General. I love that one. I mean, that probably would have worked, but the rest of them, questionable at best. He said his running mate would be Phyllis Diller, the comedian. I was like, yes. I mean, (laughs) I I don't know that I would be upset about Phyllis Diller running some shit. I know. I don't know her politics, but. (laughs) Right. Uh, Gillespie pledged to provide housing and hospital care for those who needed it and to withdraw American troops from the Vietnam War. Did he also promise every single person a candy bar? (laughs) campaign buttons had been manufactured years before Gillespie's booking agency as a joke, but proceeds went to Congress of Racial Equality and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference headed by Martin Luther King Jr. So, like, he donated a bunch of stuff. And later years, they became a collector's item. When asked why he was running for presidency, Gillespie replied, because we need one. And this became the slogan for his campaign. I love that. (laughs) He eventually pulled out. Lyndon Johnson was voted in as president. Um, yeah, and then, he knew how to be a president, yeah. so that's <laughs> checks out. And then an extra fun fact. A 2004 play about Gillespie's campaign, Vote Dizzy, by Jack Bruder, was staged in London, England, during that year's American presidential election. How fun! Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. I went down a rabbit hole of that. Because we need one. Yeah. Let's see. Audrey Hepburn did not get an Oscar nomination for her performance in My Fair Lady. Marnie Nixon did the singing, so the Academy figured it was a half a performance. <laughs> you I, know yeah, what? Fine. Okay. I'm okay with that. I'm tired. I don't like when vocalists, like, don't get credit for what they've done. So. Yeah. But, like, they should have gotten it together. Also, like, just hire someone who can also sing. Yeah. There are I lots don't know. Of those. I would love to be in a musical. I can't sing. So like you sing every week. Yeah. You can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying if I can act and then here's the singer that can't let her voice me. I'm cool with it. <laughs> anyway, right. I mean, I can't act. So it's fine. I'm going to take acting lessons with Holly. OK, they're going to be right here. So you're good. All right. I have just two more. So, paintings by Pierre Brasso, an unknown French artist, were first displayed in the Swedish art gallery. The paintings were praised by critics, one of which went as far to say, Pierre is an artist who performs with the delicacy of a ballet dancer. Hot. Turns out, Pierre Brasso was actually a four-year-old chimpanzee named Peter. Fucking not hot. The hoax was perpetrated by Dak Axelson, a Swedish tabloid writer, in order to test whether critics could tell the difference between true avant-garde modern art and the work of a chimpanzee. But, like, who's to say that the chimpanzee isn't avant-garde? Yeah, that's the most avant-garde, if you ask me. Yeah, I just, like, I felt like that was shitty. Jack Axelson. What kind of name is that? I know. Like, why can't the chimp also be a renowned artist? He could. He was, briefly. Yeah. And then, because 
I don't know. I just felt like this was a good way to end it for mm-hmm. this kind of episode. David Bowie's first TV appearance was in 1964 at the age of 17, but was not for his music. He was interviewed on the BBC's Tonight Show as the founder of the Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. Was he David Jones then? I don't know. Didn't go by David Bowie for a little while. I believe mm. that was his original name. Normally they tell me that on here. They did not. Yeah. David Robert Jones. Okay. Adorable. Yeah. You can change it for a little while. All right. So it's 1964. Kitty Genovese lived in an apartment at 8270 Austin Street in an area of Queens in New York known as Kew Gardens. Kew is spelled K-E-W as well, not Q like a line. Kew Gardens was a planned garden community set up at the turn of the century to be a quiet oasis from bustling city life. So it's supposed to be this like beautiful, quiet neighborhood full of like botanical garden type stuff. Kew Gardens features lovely homes and tree-lined streets, small businesses, and few apartment buildings. They exist, but they're not everywhere. Kitty's apartment building is still there today, and it's largely unchanged, actually. Uh, A two-floor walk-up Tudor-style building with a restaurant on the ground floor and apartments above, and it's conveniently located 100 feet from the Kew Gardens Long Island Railway Station. So that's true. Door to parking lot, 100 feet. Okay. So from her car door to her apartment door. And that's where this crime happened. That's very scary. Kitty's building is adjacent to two other residential apartment buildings. Across the street is the 10, not 8-story. So the original report says it's 8, 10 stories. uh, Marlboro apartment building. And on the other side of the Long Island Railroad, parking lot so like it's the kitty's building and then a parking lot on the other side of the parking lot is the west virginia apartments these buildings are all heavily populated too like there's a person in every apartment it's not empty uh so this is like very residential there was hustle and bustle to be sure but there was also a sense of community in kew gardens it had a very like small town feel in some parts most people who live there would have described their neighborhood and still do as safe Because of its close proximity to a major city and because so many people were living so close to one another, it may not have always been quiet, but anyone who has ever lived in an apartment building can tell you, you just kind of learn to like tune stuff out and go on with your day. If every time you heard like somebody else's radio and a conversation randomly floating around in your apartment, you stopped, you'd probably never accomplish anything. True. You'd like never sleep or pay attention, which are things I can't do anyway. So that's why I have to live out here in the woods. (laughs) Kitty had always lived in New York, though. She was born on July 7th, 1935 in Brooklyn. Kitty was the oldest of five children. She had three younger brothers and a younger sister, but was closest, uh, even though there was a 12-year age gap, to her little brother, Bill. Bill idolized Kitty. And it's pretty clear in the documentary I took a lot of today's information from, which is called Witness. And this chronicles Bill's struggle to find the truth about his sister's murder. It's excellent. It is an excellent documentary. I will link it any way possible. You can watch it for free on Prime. God, it is a very moving piece. It is very illuminating. And Bill is a well-spoken and, and fascinating person. And I totally, I, I, everybody should watch it. I'm going to ramble forever. But it was very good. I didn't know it existed in the world. So, yeah. Kitty was raised in a Catholic family, like most Italian East Coasters. Yeah. <laughs> so... She grew up in a brownstone at 29th Street, St. John's Place in Park Slope, which I believe is like a Shishi Brooklyn neighborhood at this point. I don't know if it was then. And um, guys, I don't sugarcoat victims as a rule. Leslie and I had this conversation before we started recording. I don't do that thing 
where the person is like, oh, they lit up a room. This person was probably the coolest person ever created because they died. I We don't do that ever. But I think I would have liked Kitty. Yeah. I think I that, that I would have wanted to be friends with this person. I like her a lot. She was a, a beautiful, petite, fiery girl with short, dark, shaggy brown hair and lively dark eyes and an expression that always looked as though it were laughing at an inside joke. She, in the videos in this documentary, there are a lot of, like, old 1960s videos. None of them have sound. They're all just her, like, mostly dancing, to be honest. She's dancing in most of them, or be, like, doing silly little gestures. She just looks fun. Okay. She looks like she would be really fun to spend time with. Mm. I don't know. Not always my takeaway, but it was this time. Uh, One of her high school friends describes Kitty as a cut-up. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I like that. I know. She's a cut up. She remembers Kitty um, as the head of their pack of friends. So she was always the leader and they liked to play hooky a lot. She kept saying playing hooky, which was also adorable. And they would go to the beach or they would go to the park or they would smoke cigarettes on the roof. Ooh, bad girl. I know. Kitty was outgoing, very funny, witty and charismatic. She was, as her friend says, an excellent mimic. And she would get in trouble for doing really accurate impersonations of her teachers. Okay. Everybody loved Kitty, according to this friend. Um, She said that she had, quote, an enormous following. So she's someone who you paid attention to, basically. Like an an influencer. Sure. In 1954, Kitty's mother actually witnessed a murder on the streets of New York and decided then and there that the city was not a safe place for her to raise her family. Hmm. Kitty, however, loved New York and had already graduated high school the year before. She was also engaged to be married to an ex-army officer and engineer, a man named Rocco. So while the Genovese family moved to New Canaan, Connecticut, Kitty stayed behind in New York to get ready for the wedding. So Connecticut's in there, Leslie. Don't worry. Okay, good. Kitty um, lived with her grandparents for a time, who were also in Brooklyn. And her wedding uh, went off without a hitch. It was a beautiful affair. There are videos of it in this documentary that I watched, and Kitty is smiling and beautiful and a totally like fashion forward bride it looks just like a happy awesome fun family wedding she's like you know making big hand gestures and smiling and silly faces and just like liking her life the family looks so happy but this marriage did not last a few months later just a few months the couple had their marriage annulled which means they both agreed to just dissolve it There was no, like, divorce situation. And to this day, Rocco, who is still around, will not tell anyone why this happened. Hmm. He just says, quote, my relations with Kitty shall remain a mystery forever. Jeepers. Yeah. He also states that this is because he would like to respect his and Kitty's privacy. Hmm. She didn't want to talk about it. And he, in her absence, doesn't want other people to talk about it either. Okay. So this is like, that's a pretty honorable guy. Yeah. After her marriage uh, ended, Kitty moved into a little apartment in Brooklyn by herself. She found herself doing some clerical work to get by. Kitty was not a clerical work type gal, but in 1964, it was like, you're a lady who works, you're probably a secretary. Yeah, Um, So so that's like how it had to start. But she soon found a different job tending bar, which she loved. And every report calls her a barmaid, which I'm like, can we just say bartender now? No? All right. Kitty was popular with the patrons. She was a social butterfly who knew everyone's name. Former customers said she was, quote, one of the boys. 
That's how they always, they were like, she was one of the boys. And this is like, when they talk to these guys in the documentary, it's two men who are like clearly well into their 80s. They're yeah. like the Muppets that sit in the balcony. And they're both like, everyone knew she was gay. They like give Aww. no shits. Yeah, they were really <laughs> funny. And then another guy they talked to who was like, some people thought I might be her boyfriend because nobody knew she was gay. Oh. It's this guy. And then they cut to everybody knew, <laughs> oh, which is my hilarious. favorite thing. It's really very funny. <laughs> And they give examples of how she was one of the boys and trusted because they say that men would trust her with money. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, she lent the money, which I guess was a big deal at that era. Men saw her as smart and trustworthy. But that kind of manifested in a weird way. Patrons began to place bets with a bookie on horse races and they would give Kitty the money to deliver. So she was the go-between. Mm. And um, I think she probably liked this harmless kind of rule-breaking position. I'm sure she got paid for it because it harkened back to like being a cut-up and playing hooky. Yeah, yeah. You know? Unfortunately, in 1961, Kitty and her friend Dee, who was also running money, were caught by the police and fined $50 each. Oh, And no. Kitty lost her job. <gasps> I know. Now, there's a picture of Kitty where she has like the wild hair and she's wearing like a plaid shirt. It looks kind of like headshot style. Okay. That is her mugshot. And they cropped out the plate in front of her with the numbers and stuff on it to just use it in articles about her life. That's so wild. It's a beautiful picture. It is. First of all, it's it's very pretty. Yeah. But it's her mugshot. You can still see the clip next to her collar. It's like a string where they hung the thing around her neck, but they just like cropped it so you can't see the rest of it. That makes way more sense because I was trying to find a photo of her to use for our photo suite. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to use that one, but I was like, well, I need the full size. You'll never find it because it's a mugshot. That's so funny. Isn't that funny? Her like her brother didn't even know that. It took some research. And he was like, you can see the little thing by her collar. You can see there's something there. Yeah. So funny. Um, Kitty was resourceful and didn't stay unemployed for long. She found another job as a barmaid at Ev's 11th Hour Bar in Hollis, Queens. Yes. Yes. And it's called that because it was open the whole fucking day. Like, she relocated to an apartment in Kew Gardens and worked double shifts doggedly to save some money. She had ambitions of opening her own Italian restaurant someday. Oh. Yeah, so she wanted to save money and have her own business. Kitty's hard work did not go unnoticed, and soon she was promoted to bar manager at Ev's. Former patrons describe Ev's like cheers. They say it's a place where everybody knew your name and Kitty was the queen. Okay. Yeah, people were just, just flocked to her. If you, they, These are back to these old men. They're like, if you goofed, she goofed back. <laughs> I like it. I know, they're so good. <laughs> One of the boys, like usual. Her patrons were mostly men who liked this place because it opened at 8 a.m. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. And they also talk about, they're like, she threw out that guy Mitch one time, remember? She threw him out. <laughs> and, and they were like, yeah, except for he was drunk all the time, so nobody got mad. Oh. <laughs> very fun, very fun little atmosphere. But these guys also, like I said, they knew that Kitty preferred the company of women, and it didn't bother them at all. They were like, we do too. <laughs> yeah, they're like, cool, we can all talk about that then. <laughs> we're fine. Enter Marianne. In 1963, Kitty met Marianne Zilonko. I didn't look up exactly how to pronounce her last name, and I feel really badly about it. I don't think they say it either. It's Z-I-E-L-O-N-K-O. So my guess is Zilonko. And they met either, according to Marianne, she said they met either at the Duchess or the Sea Colony. She can't remember which one. These are both, um, like, gay bars in New York at the time. It's kind of underground that they were 
that they were gay bars, but that's what they were. So, like, what is about to happen wouldn't have been a, like, covert operation. Kitty marched right up to Marianne and asked her if they had met before. She's like, have I seen you before? Do we know each other? What a slick move. Okay. And Marianne said, I don't think so. Kitty asked, well, where do you live? Maybe we've run into each other. I know. She's so good. Marianne told her that she was renting a small room and gave her the approximate location of the place. The next day, Kitty had done her research and found that little room and pinned a note to Marianne's door saying that she would be calling her on the payphone outside at 7 p.m. Oh, my. No, and she did. Oh. I know, and Marianne was there waiting. Oh. It's so cute. Marianne said that after that, she was immediately totally swept off her feet by Kitty. This confident and beautiful, charismatic woman showing this, like, bold interest in her was pretty amazing. And Marianne said she fell in love very fast, and soon the pair were living together in Kitty's Kew Gardens apartment. Marianne recalls being so very in love, but she knew that Kitty was very conflicted about being gay. When Marianne went to Connecticut um, on weekends with Kitty, because she would take her to her family gatherings on weekends, she was always Kitty's roommate, Marianne. Okay. So everyone in the neighborhood also, if they asked, like anyone who asked, she was like, yeah, this is my roommate. So that's kind of how they lived. But mm-hmm. people who knew, knew. Marianne remembers a time when the two had an argument and Kitty felt so bad that she bought her a poodle puppy. Oh, <laughs> she I went want to a puppy every time I get in an I argument. <laughs> so she felt really bad. I guess she had yelled at her or something and she went and, um, and got her this like beautiful puppy and they named him Andrew. I love that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> serious name. Unfortunately, though, after Kitty died, her father stormed into the apartment where they lived and demanded to take Andrew because she was Kitty's dog. And he thought that that meant that he belonged to the family. And Marianne said, no, the dog was hers. But the next day when Marianne returned home from work, Andrew was gone. And Bill, Kitty's brother, remembers Andrew mysteriously appearing in their home right after this. And he said the father was like, yeah, I went and got Kitty's dog because it's going to make my wife and Kitty's mother happy to remember her. But it didn't. Mm. It made Kitty's mother doubly grief-stricken. She could barely look at the dog. And after that, no one knows what happened to Andrew. He just didn't live with either one of them anymore. That's so sad. I hate that story. I'm sure that that bothers them later, too. Well, the brother, like, apologizes profusely. Because he didn't connect those dots until he was talking to Marianne, who was like, we had this, I had the poodle, the little dog. Kitty got him for me because we had an argument and he was like my little puppy. And then she talks about how it disappeared. And her brother Bill is like, yeah, out of nowhere, that dog was in our house. So my dad definitely took that dog. And he immediately was like, I am so sorry for what my family did to you. That's awful. Right. It was like just such a moment of revelation. But that shows how completely Marianne has been erased from this story so many times. Like, you just don't, you don't get to hear her. And she was so important and so important to Kitty. So this brings us up to the fateful night in question. At approximately 2.30 a.m. on March 13, 1964, Kitty left Ev's and began driving home in her red Fiat. While waiting for a traffic light to change on Hoover Avenue, she was spotted by a man named Winston Mosley, who was sitting in his parked Chevrolet Corvair. Winston did not know Kitty. Kitty did not know Winston. This was the first time they had ever been, had any kind of encounter. It's a totally random selection, which I think is scarier. Yeah. Kitty arrived back at the Kew Gardens Railway Station at 3.15 a.m. 
And the parking lot where she kept her car, as I mentioned before, is about 100 feet from her apartment door in that alleyway near the rear of the building. As she walked towards the apartment complex, Winston Mosley, who had followed her home, exited his vehicle, which he had parked at a corner bus stop on Austin Street, which she lives on Austin Street, so it's like right there. He approached Kitty from behind with a hunting knife in his hand. Kitty ran towards the front of the building, and Winston ran after her. So now they're in front of a bookstore, like across from the building. He grabbed Kitty, and Kitty screamed and fell to her knees. Now this is the first scream, and it alerts several neighbors. It wakes up a lot of people, but a few go to their windows. Many of them say they see, when they looked out their window, they saw a young woman on her knees, and she was screaming. A few people say they saw a man hit her, and she went to her knees, but no one saw stabbing at all. Okay. Everyone's like, that guy hit her in the back of the head. He, like, punched her or something. But nobody knew there was a weapon. And all of them reported thinking this was domestic violence. They said, this is the couple fighting. It's three, it's it's really late, and they're clearly drunk. At this point in time, domestic violence was also considered a family matter. And it was not something that you brought to police or discussed. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, well, that's their business. They'll figure it out. None of these people believed they were witnessing a murder. Not a single one. Or an assault. But Winston um, had not hit Kitty. He had stabbed her twice in the back. At this point, Kitty did scream, oh my God, he stabbed me, help me. And several neighbors report hearing those words. That did happen. But none of them thought that it was a serious cry for help. Once again, our brains do not make the leap to the least likely and most scary scenario. Well, mine does, but I'm special at this point. Many people assume that the noise was either children. A lot of people were like, I thought it was kids that got up super early and were like playing some ridiculous game. Some people said they thought it was cats. Some people said they thought, again, it was like someone just over-exaggerating a fight they were having. But nobody thought that she was had seriously been stabbed. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's really annoying when the cats yell about Scream being about stabbed. being stabbed. I know. I hate yeah. it so much. Mm-hmm. And these people had also been ju- just woken up from a sound sleep. Right, right. Yeah, so they're just hearing noises. Some they, of them yeah. probably didn't hear the words. Or maybe yeah. they really kind of connected those dots later and mm-hmm. didn't process it right away. And the few people that did go to their windows also heard one neighbor, Robert Moser, shout at the attacker, let that girl alone. So people hear this. This is documented. This happened. And when this guy yells, they see Winston Mosley freeze and run away. In the article, they're like, he just walked off to his car and then came back. No, he ran the fuck away because he heard somebody say something. But he only went to his car. Mm -hmm. So they see the guy dart off. But then they see Kitty get up and walk slowly and with great effort towards the rear entrance of her building. And once she got there, she's out of view of any witnesses. That's where anybody seeing her, which was not all of them, stopped. Okay. Eyewitness is not a thing. Okay. And they all assumed when they saw her go to the building that she had gone to safety. Right. That whatever had happened had stopped and she was going to go inside to someone who could help her and take care of her. Witnesses then saw Winston Mosley enter his car, drive away, and then he returned 10 minutes later. But he changed his hat, so, like, he's a different person now. Ew. Um, then he systematically searched the parking lot, train station, and... um any doors around the apartment complex, and eventually found Kitty lying in the stairwell of her building, bleeding to death. And the door at the top of the stairs had been locked, so she couldn't make it all the way inside. Oh. 
Winston approached Kitty and then heard the door at the top of the stairs creak open. A man saw them, closed the door, and left. That man was Kitty's neighbor, Carl Ross. The guy who had to talk to somebody before calling the cops? That's Carl. Carl, like Kitty and Marianne, was a man in their building living in the closet. So they were sort of a support system to one another at times. Carl, panicked, ran to a neighbor's ass house asking what he should do. And I don't think he called someone far, far away. I think he went to somebody else's house. And the neighbor said he should mind his own business. But Carl did end up calling the damn cops. He, he just couldn't. He knew he had seen something and he had to call them. Later on, it is actually Carl who also goes to Marianne and sits with her for like 12 solid hours and just gets drunk with her at her table after finding out what had happened to Kitty. Okay. With Carl gone and out of view of the street and those who may have already seen or heard the initial attack, Winston Mosley stabbed Kitty several more times before raping her, stealing $49 from her, and running away. This attack did, of course, produce more screaming, and several other neighbors, alarmed, did call the damn cops as well. But... When asked about their conversations with the police, the neighbors said the cops told them that they had already received a phone call, they knew what was happening, and they were sending officers out to the scene. Those calls were not recorded as they were seen as simply repeat information. Oh. So, we say we only got one phone call later on from this guy, but really there had been a ton of phone calls. Or not a ton, but at least, at least more than two or three. Also, in hindsight, when they narrowed down how many people actually reported like firsthand witnessing anything, like hearing words or seeing anything, it was only 12 people. Right. 38 was every person that spoke a word to the police. They just made them an eyewitness. They were not. Did, um, who was the guy that called first? Carl. Yeah. So did Carl call before she was raped? Or would this have been after? Because it sounds like a whole thing if he had to go talk to somebody first. and I, I mean, I don't know the exact timeline okay. because I don't know how long it took him to talk to somebody and call. Right, I don't know how what, long. Yeah. The attack in total takes like a half an hour. Okay. So uh, records of the earliest calls to police are unclear and were not given high priority. So people actually also called during the first attack. Oh. But police also didn't put any weight behind them because... People said things like, quote, she was beat up, but she got up and was staggering around. So they didn't think someone had been, like, seriously injured. They're like, oh, this girl got beat up by her boyfriend. Whatever. We'll figure it out. Those calls are not connected to this case either. Okay. So what was once nobody cared or said anything is now quickly becoming, yeah, a bunch of people cared and said things. You just didn't write them down anywhere. All right. Yep. The attacks spanned, as I said, approximately a half an hour. 20 minutes after the initial scream had woken her young son, Sophia Ferrara got, Ferrara, I think, got a phone call from another neighbor. And the neighbor told her that her friend Kitty was in the stairwell bleeding. So somebody else in the building, I guess, had happened upon her and knew she was friends with Sophia, called Sophia and was like, your friend is, I don't know, she's in the stairwell. I've called the cops, but like somebody needs to help her. Sophia and Kitty had become close during the past year. They would confide in one another sitting at the kitchen, at their kitchen tables over coffee and toast and talked for hours. Sophia, hearing this, ran to get her jacket and fled to the stairwell, where she tried to push the outside door open, but it hit Kitty's head as she was laying on the floor. Sophia then used the door to gently push Kitty aside and sneak herself in, and then, without a single thought, 
for her own safety or what anybody else was going to do, threw herself into the bloodbath to hold Kitty and whisper in her ear that help was on the way. Sophia would later say that Kitty's leather gloves were cut to ribbons and she could feel the gaping stab wounds on her back. But she sat there with Kitty in her arms until the ambulances arrived. Sophia said that Kitty couldn't make any sounds while she was with her and this was due to her punctured and collapsed lungs. But she only hoped that Kitty knew it was her and that she knew she wasn't alone. Kitty died in the ambulance on her way to the hospital at 4.15 a.m., Authorities would have Marianne come down to identify her body shortly after. They knocked on Marianne's door at around 4.30 in the morning or so and just told her what happened. Again, this is like her roommate. And this racked Marianne with guilt because she realized she had slept through the whole thing just a few floors away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marianne was questioned by a detective at 7 a.m. after the murders in her home. And then she was later interrogated for six hours by two homicide detectives. Those questioning her centered all their questions around her relationship with Kitty, getting super inappropriate and asking a lot about their sex life. This was also the police's focus when they questioned a couple of their neighbors. They just wanted to know what these lesbians were doing. Okay. Yep. And initially, they considered Marianne a suspect for no Mm. fucking reason whatsoever. On March 19, 1964, six days after the stabbing, Winston Mosley was arrested for suspected robbery in Ozone Park after a television was discovered in the trunk of his car. Winston's car was searched after a local man named Raoul Cleary, Cleary, sorry, they talked to his son in the documentary. And this guy became suspicious because he saw Winston taking a TV out of his neighbor's house. (laughs) Right. So he goes up to Winston Mosley and he's like, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, I'm a I'm a removal worker here to move this TV on out of here. However, Raul clearly asked another neighbor and said, like, are they moving? And the neighbor was like, they are absolutely not moving. And so Raul clearly called the police. And also um, the, the neighbor he asked, like, are they moving to his name is Jack Brown. He disabled Winston Mosley's car to ensure that he wouldn't get away. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, these guys, like, just did some fucking neighborhood justice. But also, they definitely misunderstood because it wasn't that the family was moving. It was that the TV was moving. For sure. To his house. For sure. Forever. Yeah. (laughs) A detective uh, recalled that a white car, similar to Winston's, had been reported by some of the witnesses to Kitty's murder. So this is the car, the TV in it. They're like, wait a minute, that looks like it's the same car that's been reported in this other crime. So during questioning, Winston Mosley immediately admitted to Kitty's murder and then also the murder of two other women. Annie Mae Johnson, who had been shot and burned to death in her apartment. This story is awful. He found her coming home. She was like standing outside her front door. He shot her four times in the back. then rolled her body inside the front of her home and raped her dead body. Mm. Or not quite dead. She was like almost dead. And then he set her house on fire. In some reports, her family was still in the home. But I believe the family escaped and she is the only one that succumbed to this crime. He also admitted to the murder of 15-year-old Barbara Kralik, who had been killed in her parents' Springfield Garden home that previous July. So for those of you keeping track, Winston Mosley was and is a serial rapist, murderer, burglar, and sometimes necrophile. Wow. But after being apprehended, police were kind of 
kind of shocked at what they got with Winston Mosley. One officer said they, quote, expected a larger presentation of evil, which I thought was a very interesting quotation because he's like kind of a little guy. Mm-hmm. It's like a little skinny guy. He also was extremely intelligent. He had a IQ of 135. He had a stable life, a wife, two children, and a well-paying job. Oh. Yeah. He was, uh, he was someone who liked killing people. He didn't need to. His confession is super casual. It's one of those like Dahmer style moments where he's just laying things out, Mm. which always unsettles police. There are people that say they believe he knew that when he murdered Kitty so out in the open, people would see it and he likes that part of it. He confesses to hearing the man, the neighbor yell out like, don't get away from that girl. So he says he definitely did hear that. And that is why he went away for a time. He confesses to having seen Carl Ross open and close the door. So he knew there were people around. Also, after Kitty's murder, this is the strangest thing. So after he finishes doing all of the horribleness, he runs away from the scene. On his way, running away from the scene to wherever he parked his car this time, he sees a a man who had fallen asleep at the wheel of his car at a red light. He walks up to the man, puts the knife behind his back, taps him, wakes him up, says, be careful. Guy drives away. Ew. Imagine being that guy. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Isn't that the weirdest story? I know, but that guy was, like, I was probably drunk behind the wheel. Probably. So probably I mean, if he was sleeping remember. at a red yeah. light, he probably like, wasn't wasn't doing four great. Four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. yeah so for, he's, he's convicted of all of these crimes. And at first he's sentenced to death and put in jail. But then in 1968, he escaped from prison. Oh my God. Also left out of this story all the time. And then he goes on a spree in Buffalo, New York for four days where he breaks into a ton of houses and rapes a woman at gunpoint. Then when the FBI corner him, he takes a bunch of fucking hostages. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then they put him back in jail. In an appeal, they have his sentence commuted to life in prison instead of death. That happens to a lot of people now because we don't really do death as much anymore. Back then, though, it's a little more surprising. And while he was in jail, he completed his sociology degree, good for fucking him, and wrote an editorial for the New York Times. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. So the New York Times, who is the reason this story is what it is, who shaped the way it is told and changed all the events, also let Kitty's murderer publish an editorial. It is called, quote, Today I am a man who wants to be an asset. I will share it in the show notes. You can read it if you want, but it is absurd. And he only says things like, I committed a crime. And he only talks about Kitty's murder. And he acts as though that is the only thing that ever happened. Mm. It is wild. And in the documentary, Kitty's brother Bill speaks to his son. His son is a reverend and proceeds to tell this man that their whole family is under the impression that one, Kitty Genovese is part of the Genovese crime family. So they were all mobsters. And that his father only killed her because he was cornered and she was calling him racial slurs. Okay. Then later, Bill communicates directly with Winston Mosley from prison, who refused to meet with him but did write him a letter. And in the letter, he says that he didn't kill Kitty at all. An Italian man did, and he was simply the driver. 
And this man said, if you say anything to anyone ever, I'll kill your whole family. So he has refashioned this as being a mob story, which it is not. No, definitely not. Nope. So yeah, that is, uh, that is Winston Mosley. So pretty wild. Wow. Yeah. So in the end, the story in the New York Times was pushed forward by uh, the editor, a very famous journalist named A.M. Rosenthal, who also wrote a book about the case, because of course he did. In later interview with Bill, he said, quote, I can't swear to God that there were 38 people. People all over the world, however, were affected by it. Did it do something? You bet your eye it did. So in the end, he admits that maybe he didn't tell the real story, but the story that he made up made a difference, and that's all that counts. Ugh. Yeah, it's a really, really gross thing. Later on, the New York Times did post a revision. There is like a retraction saying that some of these facts are not correct. But the reason, and also Bill Bill does call out a little bit of this. He's like, well, listen, this is like a, a traceable event. Sophia, the woman that sat with Kitty until she was taken by the ambulance, was left out of every retelling of this story, but she's not hard to find. So people said, he said, well, why didn't other reporters actually look into this case. They didn't do any reporting. They just saw what the New York Times said and reset it. And yeah, they did. Yeah. Because no one mistrusted the Times at the time. Right. And that if was, they had the press release. Yeah, like. they would have been shut the fuck down. Except there was one man who explored the story on his own, a reporter named Daniel Meehan. He said that the facts made no sense. And then when he spoke to the neighbors, they all told him they thought it was a drunken brawl. And so this man, Daniel, angrily confronted the man who wrote the article, not the editor, the man who wrote this article is a man named Martin Gansberg. So Daniel says to Martin, why didn't you say that none of these witnesses believed they were watching a murder? Because they didn't. And his reply was, it would have ruined the story. Yep. And no one called out the times because they couldn't. That man would have lost his job. And uh, A.M. Rosenthal was later quoted as saying, do you realize that this story has become emblematic of a situation in America? So basically, he's like, do you know what this story actually means? It doesn't matter what happened. Here's what it is now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, the story has been just so fabulized that even her family, like nieces and nephews, they know nothing about Kitty except for her death. And they found it out in textbooks and in like, you know, articles they read or whatever. They don't know it personally. Right. Which is kind of devastating. So Bill Kitty's brother also did a lot of research on his own and eventually found the list of all 38 people the police spoke to and that the New York Times claimed to be eyewitnesses. And a lot of them, as I mentioned before, weren't any kind of witness. One of them was a woman named Lynn who was 20 at the time. She was asleep in her room in her parents' home. She heard a scream. She sat up, didn't see anything, went back to sleep. In the police report, it says that Lynn and her mother both heard, like, the tons of dialogue about this woman yelling, like, George, he's killing me. What's going on? The police apparently in this report say they spoke to her mother, but according to Lynn, her mother didn't even wake up. Mm. So the reports are also extremely skewed. Bill also sp- speaks to a woman named Hattie and another man who is um, kept anonymous. Both of them say they called the police immediately soon as they heard the screaming. So people called. Um, but the only call on the police list is from Carl Ross. But according to Hattie, there were multiple others. Right, right. So And the, there were probably, as it seems, there were probably other witnesses or ear, ear witnesses. Ear witnesses, which I thought was a really clever term, yeah. That 
really weren't. They just wanted to be a part of what everyone else was saying. It sounds like, yeah. you know. like the And one, one of the greatest tragedies in this is that Kitty's family also were so traumatized by what happened that they didn't attend any of the hearings. And they got all of their information from the news. So Kitty's whole family believed what the Times printed. And they went through their lives believing that no one cared about this woman, that they loved their family, their sister, their daughter, their granddaughter, and that she died alone. In fact, her brother Bill informed the rest of his life based on this decision. He thought the world was so full of apathy that he immediately joined the military and went into the Vietnam War where he lost both his legs. So while this man, this editor who really pushed this narrative and wrote this book, A.M. Rosenthal, thought he had done a grand favor to all of society, it really wasn't like that in the end. Right. And I don't think we do Kitty's memory a service by not talking about who Kitty actually was and what she meant to people. Mm -hmm. That's really unfortunate. It is super unfortunate. Um, There's also a little bit of random information that didn't make it into any of the categories. One woman interviewed in the documentary also said that, oh no, it wasn't a woman, it it was a man, said that a lot of the people in the neighborhood all had similar tattoos on their arms because they were Holocaust survivors. Hmm. and their families. Now, if anyone has a reason to distrust authority, it is people who were directly involved in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. There is an argument that a lot of those people did not want to call the police because they didn't trust them. Right. Or, well, okay. Now listening to the story, Mm -hmm. It does sound like people called. They did. But what I would say is, is that in this particular case, it's more along the lines of like, that's not our business because we right. have to keep quiet. And I think that that's something that very well could have been instilled in them. And sure. it's instilled in a lot of, lot of communities or a lot of people. Yep. Like it's not our, like, there's something else going on there. I just have to worry about myself. Yep. And what's going to happen to me if I'm mm-hmm. the one that calls? Right. Mm-hmm. What's that guy going to do to me? Right. There is that fear, too. Mm-hmm. Is he going to come after me? Right. And as we mentioned before, the attitudes on domestic violence, which everyone thought it was back then, were very much don't say a thing. That's a family matter. It gets dealt with under the roof at home. And they saw Kitty walk off and go into her house. They assumed she was fine. Yeah. So the reason I included this in our Pride coverage is because it is insane that they erased a whole part of her life. Like in in no original articles do you hear about Marianne. Not that her sexuality is necessarily everybody's business, but it was a big part of how she lived. It was a big part of her life. Mm-hmm. And it is erased everywhere. And the erasure of it is a pretty grievous, considering the attitudes at the time were not very friendly towards anyone in that community. So right. I felt it important to include because I don't think every pride case needs to be about someone who was horrifically victimized because of their sexual sexuality or gender or any of those things. It can simply be because this is a member of that community and right. then we can launch talking from there, you know? Right. Well, but also, like you said, they erase that part of Oh, life I think the because... lesbian erasure is a huge thing. Yeah, they just didn't want to talk about it. So then we didn't get to hear what she was like. And Marianne was left to nothing. 
Exactly. Yeah. Marianne said in the interview that she spent years um, sleeping with one of Kitty's shirts. Yeah. You know what bothers me, though, about this is Mm -hmm. that Kitty brought Marianne around to her family. And not that I expected her family to assume anything, Mm -hmm. but just the fact that, like, it sounded like that was Kitty's best friend. So why did the family just, like, shut her out in that sense? Like, why weren't they more... Never talked like, to her you again. Lived with her after. Like, <laughs> well, the family shut down. They refused yeah, to talk about. True. They they acted like she just never existed because they didn't know how to even talk about her. The family right. coped in a very traumatic response way, mm-hmm. and it was at a time where like no one's getting counseling. Yeah, everyone's just shutting down. In fact, in the years following Kitty's death, the year after her mother had a stroke, and then a few years later, her father had a stroke. Oh, her right. mother survived it, but her father did not. Right. The stress was unbelievable. And all of her siblings, even in this documentary, when her one brother, Bill, is talking about it, there's one of her other brothers who was like, I can't do this. I buried her. I buried it. I buried it all. It's gone. I can't talk about it. Right. They have this very, like, we can't, this is not a thing we talk about. It was too much, too horrific. Shut it down. Yeah. So I don't know that they would want to talk to her friend. Yeah. Well, it's just unfortunate that that's how it went. It's super unfortunate. And like you said, I think that the New York Times did not help that situation. No. Um, and yeah, that's, it's really sad. It's really sad. Yeah. The story of what actually happened is pretty vastly different from the tale the New York Times spun with what the information they had. You know, 38 people were like every single person the cops spoke a word to. And some of them just said, oh, yeah, I heard a little rumbling in the alley. And then they were like, that's an eyewitness. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's not what that is. So it's, uh, It's pretty wild. Toast? Toast. To, obviously, to Kitty. Yep. And to Marianne. Yes. And to the poodle. Andrew Andrew. the poodle. I hope he he was given to a nice home somewhere. Yeah. Someone took care of him. In my brain, someone took care of him. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, and then I would say... Oh, and Sophia, her neighbor that sat with her. Yes, Sophia. And to uh, Kitty's brother that... Tried to reach yeah, out to Marianne to, after. To Bill Genevieve, you know? who did this amazing piece, too. Like, yeah. everyone, it's called Witness. Watch this documentary. Okay. It is very good. Great. All right. And if we were robbed of our safety in the place we felt most at home, we, we would, would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. This is the story of a girl named Kitty and how her death was rewritten to teach a lesson. But in the process, it erased her life.